right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here got an interview for you from a couple of weeks ago. My guy TC and I sat down with Eduardo Molinari, who was an assistant captain for the victorious European Ryder Cup team. We let him gloat a little bit. We picked his brain on how they put the team together, some stories from the team room. Fantastic interview. He was one of my favorite Ryder Cup guests, our favorite guests ever, if I may say. Favorite guest of the year, definitely. Great storyteller and great insight into how it all worked without giving too much away. So uh, we really appreciated his time. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Roback. These guys understand quality. Only one way to describe Roback that is best fit. Best feel that also might that might describe the European Ryder Cup team, if I may say they were the best fit for Marco Simone. Hope you guys aren't sick of Ryder Cup content, by the way. We got even more coming, but uh, we're not done with this one. Performance polos from Roback, they just hit different. Uh, if you still have not abandoned the USA uh, team, they have USA theme designs. They have a classic solids and stripes. Uh, their four-way stretch and moisture wicking fabric is just next level. They get you through a warm summer day on the course. They're great to wear around town, even throughout the fall and in the winter as well. The performance hoodies, I don't need to tell you anything more about them that I already have. They're the stretchiest, softest hoodies in golf. If you want to be comfortable and relaxed on and off the golf course, wear a rowback hoodie. They continue to add to my collection, and they continue to be worn. Performance Q-zips are fantastic. Nothing beats rocking a rowback Q-zip for an early round of golf. They're soft, they're stretchy, and comfortable, and we wear them everywhere. Uh, you can use code NLU at rowback.com for a generous 20% off your first order through the end of this week. That's R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com. 20% off polos, Q-zips, hoodies, and more with code NLU. Without any further delay, here's Eduardo Molinari. All right, TC is here with me. Uh, he decided he wanted to be on this uh, to make sure we put a bookend on the on the full gloat fest as we bring in our guest, Eduardo Molinari. TC, I'll let you I'll let you have the floor here to start if you guys want to have a little celebration of some kind uh, as we go to kick this off. I believe I've eaten as much of my words as I possibly can, but I'm always happy to revisit. Listen, you got you to gotta win with class. And uh, that's why we're bringing Eduardo on because I, I certainly can't <laughs> win with class. Uh, and, you know, kind of someone who I think has has had an outsized impact on the European success. Eduardo, you know, all the other captains said some of your statistical analysis and strategy and everything was was a big key to success, a big key to putting putting the whole team together. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. <laughs> Thank you, TC, and thanks, Solly, for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure being here. Uh, now, you're too kind. I think, uh, you know, I obviously helped a, a little bit, but I have to say that um, Luke was uh, MVP, I think, of the week. He was unbelievable from, from the first day he got the job all the way to, you know, Monday morning when we left uh, Rome back home. It was uh, incredible, and obviously the players were, you know, some of them were really outstanding, And uh, but we'll talk about it. So if you go back, uh, I believe some people maybe on this show may have uh, may have gotten a little carried away if we go back to Whistling Straits and, and, and looking, looking at, at future Ryder Cups from there. I won't name any names uh, on that, but... At, at, at some point, and listen, I've, I've talked privately with some team members from Europe as well that voiced some of the same concerns coming off of Whistling Straits, but at what point for you did things start to look like, hey, 
you know, things are on, on the up and up with their, with Europe, and we have a really good chance to not only just beat the, the Americans in Rome, but also beat them pretty soundly. Well, I would say sometime after the Masters this year, it's where things started to to change dramatically. Like I was, I was always uh, keeping an eye not only on my numbers but like on on data golf at the the live prediction. And I think beginning of March we basically had very little chance. I think it was like a sixty five percent US and twenty something Europe, twenty five thirty maybe less than thirty percent Europe. And then all of a sudden, they you know chances started to to shrink. But more than that, it was like we had John winning the Masters. We had Fitzy winning the week after. Then Victor caught fire in the summer. And all of a sudden, we, we thought, oh, here, you know, we might have a chance. I think some of, the, some of the players from Europe, I mean, it happens every four years. I don't know why it's difficult to explain. But like anytime there's a Ryder Cup in Europe, there's always some European players that catches fire in the summer and, and starts to play really well. Like it happened in Paris with Francesco, it happened this time with uh, obviously Victor had the you know best summer of his life so far. I don't know. There's, there's something. There's something different. And uh, even even you know a small thing that happened. You know when Victor wins, uh, when Victor won BMW, I text him literally ten minutes after he won, just because you know I work with him as well privately. So I just text him saying, "Well done, congratulations." And he replied after an hour, and all he said was, Rome is going to be so much fun. Like, he just won the biggest event of his career, and he's already thinking about Rome. He just doesn't give a shit about BMW, about the FedEx, about the playoffs. He just wanted to be part of a winning Ryder Cup team. And I think that's that says a lot. Was it about getting paid for the Ryder Cup? Was that what he was messaging about? I'm sure that's what it was. <laughs> no, we had none of, none of that, actually. I think uh, I would say... <laughs> I, I don't know exactly what happened on, on the U.S. side, but I would say 12 out of 12 guys in our team would happily pay a lot of money to be part of. And, uh, you know, on that topic, I mean, we had obviously Olazabal as one of the vice captains and Olazabal basically lives and dies for the Ryder Cup. And he was telling us um, some savvy stories at night, one evening. And then eventually he almost started crying and we said, you know, Jose, what's what's wrong? And he said, well, you guys don't realize how much this means to me because uh, he said, I would happily give one major back to be able to play in one more Ryder Cup. And we were like, huh? Say that again? And he said, yeah, yeah. I would very happily give a major back to play one more Ryder Cup. And he's like, this is how much it means to him. So it's, uh, yeah, special. Gosh, if this keeps accumulating, I'm going to end up flipping to Europe, like rooting for Europe. Like I can't, on, I can't. Man. Like it, it, it's a mountain, a mountain, a mountain of evidence that's uh, yeah. getting in at this point. TC, going back to kind of the the lead up to this Ryder Cup, like with with Henrik losing the captaincy, Luke getting named the captain. Were you an assistant captain from the start, or were, or did Luke call your number after he got appointed and say, hey? I'm putting my team together. Well, a bit of both because um, I had spoken with Henrik when he was uh, soon after he was named captain because he wanted me to take charge of this uh, like analytics and stats uh, side of things, which I happily did. And then a few weeks later, Henrik asked me if I wanted to be a vice captain on top of it because he said it would be easier with the communication in the team and just being more involved 
you know, behind the scenes, which I was very happy with. And then when, you know, everything happened in the summer, then Luke was named captain and then he called me the very next morning. I remember I was in the UK. He was in uh, back in Florida. It must have been like probably 5 a.m. for him. And we just chatted for about half an hour, 45 minutes. I explained to him what I was doing for Hendrik. Uh, and I said, if you want me to keep going, great. If not, you can find someone else. No problem at all. And straight away, he said, no, absolutely. I want you to, to keep going and to be a vice captain. So I was very happy to, to keep going with Luke. And then your background, just from an analytics perspective, is it just something that you've gotten into naturally as your career progressed? Or, or have you kind of always had this bent? Well, I, I studied engineering in college in Italy. So I always had an interest in numbers and stats and probabilities and all that, that stuff. Uh, and before turning pro, I thought if I could keep stats about my game, it would be very easy to understand where I need to improve, where I'm good enough, you know, what, what I can do better in my game. So I developed my own kind of system to keep track of everything. And then obviously initially it was very, very simple and then it just became more and more complex. And then at the end of 2019, just before COVID hit, a few guys on the European tour asked me if I could help them with stats, analytics, just understanding the game a bit better. So then I was in a way lucky that uh, COVID hit because then during COVID I was able to basically build a brand new platform. I was doing all the coding and everything. And then after COVID, uh, Fitzy was the first one that you know called me back and said, you know, if if it's available to you know to other players than yourself, I would like to to give it a go and start with it. And he started using it. He loved it. He gave me a lot of good feedback and input on how to make it better and better. And then he started to talk very highly about me, about what I was doing. So more players came on board. He started to play really well. And then more players came on board. And then it became uh, it became quite a big thing. So I'm a huge fan of strokes gain. I'm a huge fan of analytics. I'm, I'm a couple part question here and saying I'm curious as to one, what your data looks like compared to what we see publicly, right? I mean, we uh, you mentioned using data golf. I use data golf. Somehow I thought the U.S. was going to win. Somehow you thought Europe was going to win. We're looking at the same information. I'm wondering how we got there. But you're, you're kind of uh, – there are – inherently, I think there are some flaws in strokes gained, like talking about course difficulty. And, you know, if you're hitting more greens in regulation, chances are you might be leaving yourself more difficult putts than people that are missing and could chip to uphill spots and all kinds of – I'm I'm kind of starting to fill in the blanks for you here, but I'm wondering what – what are flaws in information that we see and how do you address that or do you address that in, in kind of analytics that you do? Yeah, so there's a, there's a few missing things in, in Shotlink. I, I would say the biggest one are you don't know where the players are aiming, both off the tee and into the greens. So if there's a, sometimes there's a back left pin, even when you watch on TV, there's a back left pin and some players stiffs it and he's probably he was probably going three, four yards right and a few years short of it, he actually pulled it and got lucky, got away with it. So that's one thing that we track as well, which you cannot see on Shotlink, obviously. Other things is obviously well, wind direction. And the main one would be the brakes on the putts, uh, where you miss the putts, uh, why you miss the putts. So did you miss a putt because it was a bad stroke, bad speed, you overread the line, underread the line, whatever it was. So there's like, basically we get a lot of information from Shotlink and then we add additional layers depending what each player wants to wants to have wants to look at yeah we, you put everything together you can you know some of the things we look at is uh, for example I had a chat earlier this year with Victor Hovland 
and with his coach, uh, Joe Mayo, and Joe was saying, I think there's something wrong in Victor's approach play. And I said to him, well, the only thing wrong is that Victor is just way too aggressive because basically his, his dispersion is actually pretty small relative to his own targets. But then he fires at the pin pretty much every time he's on the fairway in position. And in the long run, he's going to hit a few more shots close, but then he's also going to be short-sided a lot more often. And then on top of that, his short game wasn't exactly the best. So he was leaving himself difficult up and downs with a bad short game. It was just a, a deadly combination. And so, you know, that obviously Victor improved his, his uh, short game a lot. But even now, sometimes we just have a chat and he says, oh, yeah, I was trying to, you know, playing boring golf. And I remember before the, well, after the, after the FedEx, after the last round of the FedEx, I think in the press conference he mentioned that he was just trying to play boring golf. And I was like almost in tears, like, you know, six <laughs> months before. He was like, well, if, if I have a seven iron from the middle of the fairway and the flag is three from the edge, I'm just going straight at the pin. And I'm like, not sure that's the best way. But from a data set perspective, does, I guess, two-part question, does does the DP World Tour run off of ShotLink as well? Or is it a modified version? Uh, of we have a similar system, which is called IMG Arena. Okay. Uh, which is basically the same, is a little bit less accurate on the greens. So then most of the times the players will edit their um, batting distances, but everything else is uh, basically the same information. Yeah. On that front, you're basically importing two different data sets for a lot of your players versus versus on the US side, they're just, they just have one data set because it's coming straight from shot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's, uh, I mean, it's very similar to what Data Golf does. We just do it a little bit more in depth. Uh, and then you have to adjust as they do for like strength of field and stuff like that. Because when you compare, you know, someone gaining two shots on the field in Europe is not the same as someone gaining two shots on the field at any PGA Tour event. Yeah, Solly, Solly's uh, made so that yeah. very clear to us uh, <laughs> over the last few. It's good to hear validation of that. Nobody's yeah, arguing yeah. with me anymore. All of a sudden, no, no, no. I mean, it's 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 very. You know, it's one of the things that sometimes I have an argument with the people saying, "Oh, the world ranking points. We should get more world ranking points in Europe." And it's like, well, when you look at the strength of field, it's, it's perfect the way it is now. It's, we, we've been, you know, we've been, we've been spoiled for many, many years, uh, to be honest, because we were playing some events in the, in the Middle East in the beginning of the year where we would have three of the top five players in the world and the winner get 50 points. Man, I thought this would feel better getting the validation on this. This was, this was a campaign of mine for years, and I thought this validation would feel better than it does. But so... Go uh, going into into the Ryder Cup and, and I guess again multi part question here, but how do you as your team is starting to take shape? You probably have an idea of who some of the captains' picks are, but I would guess even up till the last month or so, the last couple of picks were not you know finalized, finalized. But as you're uh, you know assembling those last picks looking at the profile of your team, are you starting to think about how you're going to set this course up? Is that like part of the decision of taking uh, Ludwig Aubert and Nikolai Hoygaard going into saying like, all right, this coincides with, hey, we just took a visit there or we're going to take a visit there and players don't like the rough. We're going to end up cutting the rough down. Do they these guys fit that profile? That's a pretty iterative process, but when did that start and kind of when did you guys start thinking about how you want to set up the course and matching the team to that? That's like I, uh, six I, questions I, in this one. This is how my brain works with the Ryder Cup, Eduardo. I've, I, I, I've, I have to brain dump on you. Okay. So start with Ludwig. Ludwig was always going to be a pick. Come on. <laughs> no, I mean, he's, uh, Ludwig is, um, 
obviously Ludwig, uh, he came to play the last two events in Europe and he finished top five in Czech. And I would say even after Czech, before he won in Kran, he was probably nailed on in the team. He didn't know. And he played with uh, Nico Kolsertz and myself in Kran, the first two day, the first two rounds, the last counting event. And we thought, right, we're going to play with him and put him under some pressure. And he was five under through six on day one, missing two 10-footers in the first six holes. And I looked at Nico Kolsertz walking off the sixth green, and I said, Nico, I think he's a bit uncomfortable this morning. We need to give him a chat. <laughs> Uh, so no, I mean Ludwig was crazy. But um, going back to the to the course setup is something that we started looking at more than a year ago. Uh, obviously, you know, uh, out of the twelve players, you know probably six or seven already a year before, unless something dramatic happens like an injury or a, a sudden loss of form. So we had our six seven guys, and we also knew six seven guys from the US team. Uh, so then you start you know, looking at possible options for the course setup based on those guys, which are most likely the guys that would play more matches as well. Like, you know, someone like Rory, John, Victor, not only you know they're in the Ryder Cup, but they're not going to play two or three matches. They're going to play four or five, most likely. So then we started to, you know, have a look at that. And then we had like, again, similar to Data Golf, we had like percentages of the players making the team. So you have like a weighted average for the whole team where someone like, you know, Ludwig, maybe a year ago, he was at 5% of making the team and someone like Rory was at 99% of making the team. So then you create a profile for the US, a profile for Europe, and all of a sudden magic happens and we find out that we were slightly better outside 175 yards, which is the magic number. So then we started, um, well, I think that was one of the, the biggest things we tried to make it a, a driving contest and a, and a, like a mid-long iron contest. I mean, Rory almost spilled the beans uh, a month before because obviously he talked with Luke, he talked with myself, and he said, "Oh yeah, if it's a, if it's a driving and mid-iron contest, uh, we have a good chance." And we thought, yeah. no, <laughs> he now. told me that, and I was like, "Is he messing with me? Like, is he is he trying me to, to get me to float this information so they can flip it on us? Is this gamesmanship here? No, no it, it no, was no. accurate." Um, the, the funny thing is, the other day when I was flying here to Madrid, I sent a small report to Luke, like a, after a post-match analysis. And of all the shots we gained over the US, 92% were either off the tee or between 175 and 225 yards to the pin. Wow! So I thought we putted better. I thought we chipped better. I thought, but actually, the you know the biggest difference was literally from the tee all the way to 175. What a validation. Yeah, I mean, we, we expect it to be better. I would have never guessed we were going to gain so much on that distance range. But I guess we just, you know, at the end of the day, we, our guys play some unbelievable golf, especially our top guys were like in top form. And I mean, when you think that John, Rory and Victor, they won 10 and a half points out of 14 matches and they never played together once. So that's... That's a lot. Yeah. A quick break here to check in with our friends at No Laying Up. That's right. The No Laying Up Pro Shop is buying up ad space. And if you haven't bought from us in the past, it is a great time to take a spin around the shop. Store.nolayingup.com. We got new Holderness and Born Fall apparel. We got limited edition foot joy apparel. We got head covers. We got ladies gear, towels, tees, socks, and more. We are really pumped about the fall collections uh, that have been coming in over the last month and will continue to come in. The restocks we just did on the best-selling quarter zips and workout t-shirts 
episodes. You can stay up to date with all the new releases and be the first to know about Pro Shop promos and our holiday discounts by signing up for the No Laying Up emails, including our monthly newsletter. Go to newsletter.nolangup.com to sign up and get a free towel with your first purchase on an order over $50. That's newsletter.nolangup.com for a free NLU towel with your first purchase. Offer ends October 31st, and don't worry, we will respect your inbox with our email volume. Back to Eduardo Molinari. So from a setup perspective, how do you take those learnings or those kind of, hey, this is our general theme. We want to make sure that they're hitting... Are you looking at uh, at whole distances? Are you pinching certain things in? Yeah, th- there's a few things we play. The obviously we played the Italian Open there three times. So every year we were trying to change the height of the rough, maybe change a couple of tees, and then we were looking at where the players were gaining most of their shots. And when we played in May this year, so six, well, four months ago. At the end of the week, we had a look at the numbers and all of a sudden, all the players that played well, they gained most of their shots outside 175 yards. So we thought, all right, this is this is the setup we want. And so we tried to replicate that. The problem is in the summer in Rome, it can be very hot. So we just asked the greenkeepers not to cut anything down until we went for the practice trip. And we went for the practice trip and it was way over the top. Like the rough was, I have some pictures where the rough was like knee high, uh, literally just off the fairway, uh, but it was—I mean, it was never going to be like that at the Ryder Cup. It's just that you know we wanted to have a look. I mean, you can always cut it down. You cannot make it go yeah. into. I, so I, I was horrified. I played it two days after the Italian Open finished. Think like we made the trip over specifically to be like we want to see tournament condition is as close as it'll be to the Ryder Cup. It's one of the most miserable golf experiences I've ever had. I mean, it was horrible. I mean, I mean, my legs were rashy at the end from all of the the tall grass that I was in the whole time, and. Yeah, it, it played so completely differently when, once Ryder Cup time came around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Ryder Cup obviously there, there was a, there was a lot of rough, but it was like it wasn't it wasn't nothing like Paris, where it was just a hack out. Like you could still hit the green yeah. um, if you had like a short mid iron. Um, but so on a team perspective, were you trying to find other players, like find captains picks that would sort of. Because you've got a good idea that, hey, this is how we want to do it. We've got a bunch, you know, the majority of the team at this point has, they're going to gain strokes with long irons. They're good off the tee, that sort of thing. Are you going out and trying to identify other captain's yeah, picks that fit that yeah, profile? It was a combination, yeah, it was a combination of a few things. I would say we were obviously looking for ideally that kind of player. Uh, then the other thing is we had a lot of very good foursome players. We didn't have a lot of formal players. So, like, obviously, Ludwig, Nikolai Hoygaard, uh, even Bob McIntyre, to some extent, he's good in formals and not so good in foursomes. So we're trying to make sure that we had enough options for both formats. Uh, we were looking at whoever was playing best in the last few months. So someone like Seb Straka, he was having a great, great summer of golf. Uh, both Nikolai... And Ludwig, they played extremely well from you know middle of August onwards. So it was a combination of of things, but obviously, yeah, you look at uh, a bunch of different stuff. You you mentioned guys being good for foursomes and good for four ball. What what makes those profiles fit? I, I've I, I cannot dive any harder into the Ryder Cup, and I still don't think I have any understanding of how you identify who those guys are in, in your mind. How how do you identify who's good at foursomes and who's good at four ball? 
again, so four balls is basically just making birdies. So whoever is making the most man- number of birdies is, is good in four balls. And then we had a little, not secret, but you know something that I'm going, not going to oh, disclose to make sure that we can, you know, two players that can make the same number of birdies, but then you want to kind of mix yeah. them up a little bit. So, and then in in four songs, it's a bit more complex. So, uh, I started to kind of develop a system where basically we could have, let's say, Rory playing with Tommy. And then Rory will hit the tee shot on the first. We know exactly how many times he's going to hit the fairway and how far he's going to be. So then from there, Tommy is going to hit the second shot. And we know his like dispersion and strokes gain from each distance range. How many times does he hit it inside 10 feet? And then Rory hits the path and then you just keep going. They basically play, you make them play 18 holes on a kind of a simulation. And then you get an expected score and then you flip them. So all of a sudden, Tommy hits the first and Rory hits the second shot at the first. And then you do the same for all possible combinations. And we could do it. I mean, we looked at, I think we were looking at like 25, 30 players. And, and you know, all of a sudden you had some players that were very good in foursomes for different reasons. Like one player could be very good because he hits a lot of fairways. One player could be very good because on... I don't know, even holes, it's important to putt very well. So, like, he could be a great foursome player. Uh, it just, for example, Ludwig was great because he's obviously unbelievable off the tee. And then if he was playing even, you could hide a little bit his weakness, with his, which is his approach play. So, all of a sudden, him playing with Victor, you're basically giving Victor 10 yards longer off the tee as many fairways as, as Victor hits. And then you got Victor hitting a club less into the greens, which is like, he's deadly from 160 and then from 150 is even worse. So in theory, there's good foursomes players for a particular golf course that doesn't necessarily translate to the next one. And if there's a rerouting of any kind of that golf course, it might also be a different equation, right? Like for President's Cup, I know you're not involved with that, but Quail Hollow, they rerouted a bunch of holes and the 18th became the 15th, which was an odd hole versus even like that might play a factor in whether or not somebody is a good foursomes fit. Yes, it won't it won't shift massively, but it, it can definitely shift a little bit uh, the odds and, and the numbers, yeah. And then, you know, I think the, the important thing there is, uh, especially for foursomes, but even balls, is that you want to have, I mean, it's not only on data, you want to have players that like to play with each other, like to spend time with each other, even caddies that like to hang out with each other, you know, personalities fit. So, you know, if someone is someone that likes to talk a lot and the other guy just wants to stay quiet. I mean, if you notice, I think it was very noticeable in person, but I think even on TV, like our guys, they walked together a lot. They were like hugging each other on the first tee. They were speaking a lot with each other. They were just trying to be as close as possible to each other. And sometimes you would see pictures of, you know, two Americans on the tee, just, you know, two feet for two feet from each other just looking and looking up uh it was just a bit of a different vibe that's the but, eye test yeah you know? that's where i i, I still can't <laughs> I, I walk away from every one of these and be like okay this is why europe wins this is why europe wins and i still you've played in you've played in a Ryder cup like you you've been here for this how does that team environment translate to playing better golf like why is that right i mean i i can see it in my own eyes i still struggle to explain uh why that is though it's difficult to put into words. I think you feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself. You see, like the especially the top guys in the team, 
they, I mean, they, they literally live for the Ryder Cup. Like even someone like Rory on the Monday night, he gave, a, you know, we just had a bit of a chat after dinner with the whole team and, you know, the players, vice captains and, and Luke. And Rory was trying to explain what the Ryder Cup means to him. And at the end of it, he was almost in tears. He was almost like, he was so, like, ready for it. And, and he just wanted it so badly. And I told him on, on the Sunday after we won, I I bumped into him on 18 when we were waiting for Shane to finish. And I said, Rory, I just couldn't believe how much this means to you. Because obviously, you, you know, you still have the Masters to win. You still have, you want to win majors. You want to, I thought you were wanted to win mostly majors. And he said, this is, you know, this year, this is the thing that I wanted the most. Which, you know, from someone like him is like, it's powerful. So I think as a, you know, when you're a rookie in that team room and you see someone like that, that is so motivated to play well, it just inspires you to play better golf. And then the other thing as well, I think, is that, again, guys like Rory, John, I mean, if you if you walked in the team room any day of the week, it looked like... John and Rory were best mates with Bob and Nikolai, and they probably saw each other two times before the week. But it was literally, you know, having dinner together and, you know, Bob was sitting at the table, Rory would go there and have a chat, and, and it's like, it's difficult to see. I promise this next question is not about sour grapes. I promise this is not, okay? But I'm, I'm going to float this by you. If I'm looking back at past Ryder Cups, going back to 2006, home team blowout, 2008, home team blowout. 2010, very close. You were a part of that Ryder Cup. 2012, obviously very close, but home team was blowing them out before miraculous final day. 2014, home team blowout. 2016, home team blowout. 2018, home team blowout. 2021, home team blowout. 2023, home team blowout. You see what I'm getting at here. You've talked a little bit about some of the, you know, we haven't actually gotten into some of the details of, of what you've done with course setup. I understand there's a little something about bunker rakes in there, which I want to pick your brain about too. But it, are we past the U S was a little stronger from, uh, are you grinning here? Is it, you know what I'm talking about or not that, uh, we were, the U S was stronger from fairway bunkers so that they were raked a little bit wider with wider grooves. Is that accurate? Uh, no, you're close, but oh, okay. not, close, but no. Okay. Not there. Okay. Well, anyways, close. is it past time for, to give, to give some of these advantages that, that come through course setup? back to something more neutral. If we want to have a close competition, is it time? And again, I thought the, the setup was totally fair and fun. It promoted a fun style of golf. I did not think France promoted a fun style of golf, but this was fun and entertaining golf. So I'm fine with that. And it's not sour grapes. The U S does the same thing. That's, that's all to say, like, are we better off with a closer to a neutral setup? So you can't exacerbate the weaknesses of the other team in the, in this spirit of having a close, more close competitions in this event. Yeah, I would say so. Um, I think something has been done already because up until, I think, Hazeltine, the home team could pick the pins and they could pick the tees. And now that's not the case anymore. So now both teams, they get the five pins that are going to use at the beginning of the week. They don't tell you which pins is singles, which pins is foursomes, but at least you know the five pins. And they tell you, let's say, on the eighth hole, we could move the tee one tee up on certain days on the 16th hole we could move we might move the tee back uh so i think part of it has uh, has been taken away already to be honest i don't know i mean it's i i think yes course setup is definitely an advantage 
But I think there's a lot of other things like the crowds, you know, even I think in Rome, the crowds were very respectful, but they were also very loud. And I think there's something, again, when, when you're playing in front of a crowd that kind of loves you, you, it's almost like you cannot wait to make a part and just celebrate and just get them going. And as, a, as an away team, when the home team starts to get off to a good start and then the crowds are behind us, uh, it just becomes a very, very long week. So, yes, core setup, I think it's, uh, there's something to it. Um, and, I, and, and, I mean, they could make it completely neutral where, you know, the home team can go there, practice, do whatever you want. But, you know, you don't have, you don't have a say in the height of the rough or the width of the fairway or the speed of the greens or the rake in the bunkers. But <laughs> well, that's kind of my point is there's enough home field advantage, I think, with all the things you just mentioned that do you need the course setup on top of that? Right. And maybe it's on it's good. Somebody's got to do it first. Right. It, 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 it just going to keep trading off. No one wants to be the first one to do to, to, to sacrifice that advantage. We, we can try it both page and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it's also something, too, where the Americans are about to dig up Hazeltine and basically create the place in their in their image a little bit, right? Of, of, yeah. You know, it's hard to pick your, pick what it's going to be like six, however many years in advance though, you know, I mean, I was going to say it's, it's still a long time away. Yeah. So it's a, it's a tricky exercise, but yeah. how much did you communicate with guys prior and collaborate with them on, Hey, you know, this is who you may play with. This is who, and how much did you collaborate with the DP world tour as far as, you know, with the, pairing that you mentioned at Cron or all the Wentworth stuff. Yeah. So DP World Tour has been was always been has always been very good with us. So this is something I didn't know before being a vice captain. But once you're a vice captain, you basically choose the two players you play with all the every week until the Ryder Cup for the first two days. So I mean if you notice in the last so I was named captain in May twenty two and in the last 14 months, I only ever played with European players every single week. Thursday, Friday, every week. Uh, so it, I think it's it's not so much to see how they play, but it's more like to get to know them a little bit more, spend some time with them. Uh, we organize like a countless number of dinners, you know, even like in Scotland, we had a massive dinner, but we did it a lot of times. Uh, and I think just playing with them, again, it makes them a bit more comfortable if they happen to be in the Ryder Cup team. They just know someone a little bit better, especially for the European guys, because you, you have to imagine that some of these guys that play mostly in Europe, again, they've only seen John and Rory and, and those guys two, three, four times in their life. Uh, I mean, we another thing that Luke did, and he was very good with it, I think he was at the PGA Definitely at the PGA, maybe even at the US Open, he organized practice rounds between Rory with some of the guys and then John with some other of the guys, especially with the guys coming from Europe. Because, I mean, John John and Rory, they don't need to play with each other. But like John and someone like Nikolai Hoygaard or Rory and Nikolai or Rasmus, whoever, even players that might not be in the team this time, but they might be in the team in two years' time. So we're just trying to, you know, build it very much in the long run. 
Looking just at Rory as an example, because he's played in so many Ryder Cups at this point, I, I don't know what's going to come at, at, at your guys' camp. Is he going to play with, you know, a rookie Torbjorn Olsson, or is he going to show up and play with Tommy Fleetwood, who's been one of the best European uh, Ryder Cuppers, at least obviously was in Paris? How do how does it get decided? Like, all right, John Rahm, you're going to be playing with Nikolai Hoygaard, the rookie here, and Rory, you're going to be kind of paired with another top gun this go around. How does that all come about, and what are those conversations like? Yeah, so it's. Uh, I think that was the 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 most fun part of the Ryder Cup of, of my Ryder Cup, um, and also the most difficult one uh, because obviously we started looking at the data and making sure we were looking at what were the best possible pairings and the worst possible ones that you just want to avoid. Then Luke, especially, he talked to the players and basically asked them, "Who would you like to play with? Who you wouldn't like to play with?" And I have to say we're quite lucky because of our 12 guys, I think maybe only one or two, they said, oh, I don't want to play with this guy or this guy. So we, they, we basically had no, no constraints, no obligations on that side. Because if you, if you have, all of a sudden, if you have a few guys that say, I don't want to play with him, I don't want to play with him, I don't want to play with him, then it just, you know, all your options start to shrink very quickly. The other thing we looked at, we wanted to have everyone playing on Friday. So we needed to find a spot for everyone in the team. So that was a conscious decision going into the week well beforehand. Like, hey, we, we definitely want everybody to play Friday. And is that just because you want to get everybody's feet wet? You want them to be comfortable? Yeah, I, I think it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's difficult to judge someone just on the practice rounds or on the weeks before because, I mean, the Ryder Cup is such a different animal to any, any other golf tournament. You want to see how they play, how they react in that environment. And I think having everyone on the course on the first day if someone wasn't comfortable or was playing particularly bad then you can see them on the second day but if you don't play them on friday then you don't know how they're going to react on saturday so you're trying to guess on saturday which you don't want to do and i think that was a yeah the the original idea of this was uh, thomas bjorn uh, I remember having dinner with him and Luke in Ireland, so like a month before, and he su- he strongly suggested that everyone should be on the course at least once on on Friday. And I think in in hindsight, it was a it was a great idea. So then you have that, and then um, and then you start asking the guys, and then all of a sudden you start looking at your possible. So you, obviously you know Rory, John, Victor are going to play thirty six on day one. And then you start finding partners for them. You don't want to. We, we didn't want to pair them together to avoid the, you know, the Tiger Field situation at Oakland Hills. Um, I mean, eighteen hole in match play, pretty much anyone can beat anyone. And if you put them together and you lose that point, it's like you almost lose two points. Um, so again, you try and split them, and then you start and, and find partners. We look at the ball situation, which is obviously very, very tricky in foursomes. Again, you have some guys like, you know, we asked John, we said, John, what, you know, is there, do you have any preference for golf ball for, and he was, oh, just give me 10 balls on the range. I hit shots with track one. I'll be fine with it. I can play it in holes. I'm like, oh, thanks, John. Isn't, it, isn't that reduced though as well with the new, because can't you put any ball in play on any tee that you want from the start of each hole? Like you don't need to do odds, evens anymore. Yeah, yes, but then again, if someone hits it in the rough and you lay up, then you have to hit with the wrong ball. And then other guys were like, I remember there was one guy in particular who I'm not going to name him, but there was one guy that was uh, switching balls just before 
right, a couple, a couple of weeks before. Uh, so that was a, a bit of an issue, a headache. And then at Wentworth, we asked uh, Ludwig if he could hit a few shots with this ball. And all of a sudden, Ludwig, say Ludwig driver numbers are, you know, two, two, six spin launching at 12. And the ball was launched, that ball was launching at 12 and spinning three, eight, three, nine. So all of a sudden, Ludwig was losing 35 yards of the tee. So we said, right, this is not an option. Um, so you, you have, yeah, I mean, even, even if they can switch ball at, at some, if, when the ball is so dramatically different to what you're playing, then that's not an option anymore. Um, and so, you know, you look at all the possible combination and constraints and then eventually we wanted to start fast. So we decided to go basically all out in the morning and just, you know, put our best four best pairings out in the morning, which paid off pretty good, I would say. And then, yeah, and then obviously you just keep going. How much did it change up, like, versus what you thought it was going to be on Saturday? How much did you, you know, based on how people played or surprises or anything like that? Yeah, basically on, on Friday we had, a, we had the plan basically set in stone uh, the weekend of Ireland, so two weeks before, two and a half weeks before. Uh, and we just had a couple of options in case player A is not playing great, we can swap him. And in case player B is not playing great, we can and still have everyone on, on the course on, on Friday, which was the, the biggest concern. And then for Saturday, we, well, Luke was very keen on, on making sure that maybe John was rested for Sunday singles because at Whistling Straits he played five matches and he said he was very tired on Sunday. So if we had the option to rest someone, John was always going to be the first one of our big players to, to rest. And that's, that's what happened on Saturday. And then again, Saturday, I mean, after Friday started, the morning was always going to be exactly the same. Just We just switched the order a little bit. And then in the afternoon, obviously John rested. We had a couple of different pairings that we could kind of switch with each other. Uh, so it wasn't, I have to say, I mean, we had to hand in the pairings at 11 a.m., uh, for the afternoon session and it just took us we, we always met at like 10 15 45 minutes before with luke and the other vice captain in in a corner on the golf course every time it was like a five minute discussion and it was it was pretty easy and the same thing at night like you know when they finished i think we had an hour from when they finished playing before we could hand in the, the before we had to hand in the the pairings for the next morning and it literally took us five minutes on Friday night. Uh, so everything, I, I, the, the great thing with Luke is that he's, and I'm, I'm quite similar, like he's very well organized. He, he likes to think about a lot of different options and possibilities well ahead. So uh, even with the players, like there was a feeling, a general feeling that everything was very well managed. Everything was, it was calm. It was, there was a reason behind everything. And I think as a player, it just puts you in a, in a good place. How, how do you determine the order, specifically for the team portions, right? Are you trying to avoid certain American pairings? Are you trying to match up with certain pairings? Are you trying to guess what they're doing at all? Or how do you come up with who goes out first, second, third, fourth? I don't want to sound too... Oh, come on. No, 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 no. I oh, can okay. tell you. No, I don't, I don't okay. want to sound too, too cocky, but I remember telling Luke on, I want to say Wednesday... I said, look, I have a feeling Cantley and Sander are going to be last foursome and Scotty and St. Burns are going to be first foursome. 
So having said that, John was always going to be our first foursome with Tyrell. And then we said, all right, we send Rory and Tommy out last because we felt we felt if you could beat Scotty and Sam Burns, that's a big point to, to get. And if you could beat Patrick and Sander, that's a massive point to get. So we, we literally tried to get those two and we got them and we beat them both. And, and yeah, it was, it was a dream start. But yeah, it's uh, and then same thing. Like uh, I, I, they probably they probably guess the same. Like it's it's always the first and the last foursomes of the first session are always very very strong. So it was always going to be either or. And then uh, and then obviously they rested uh, JT and Spieth, and I could bet a lot of money. I don't bet, but I could bet a lot of money that JT and Spieth was going to be first four balls out in the afternoon. And they got Victor and Tyrrell. So, I mean, it's. Uh, I, I think there's there's a bit of a guessing game, but you can kind of predict what's what's going to happen. And then I think you know most people could see John going out first in the singles versus Scotty. That that was almost a gimme. Uh, and then after that, it becomes a bit more. I think when you're when you're behind in the singles, you want to front load, like put all your players, strong players, out first hoping to at least get to the end of it. And and that's pretty much what they did. So for singles, you basically said, hey, we want to have a pretty well-balanced thing. Where- yeah, I mean, for singles, the, the thing is, uh, so the U.S. were always going to put their strong players out first. First three, four players were going to be their best player. Their players playing the best. Uh, you could hide like John, Rory and those guys and get them easier matches. But all of a sudden, if you lose the first four and then it happens that John or Rory lose a game, then you're losing five or six games already. So I think the best way is always to try and, especially when you're ahead, to try and cover them up and make all the matches as close as possible. And then eventually you're going to get points somewhere. Like it's if it's all very balanced matches, it's very difficult that you're going to lose four in a row. So any big surprises that that the Americans sent out where you just like, man, I did not see that coming or I did not see that team or I did not see that, you know, that pairing mm, going out first. I, know. I, I was, uh, I mean, with all, with all the respect, because I'm a, I'm a big uh, Jordan Spieth fan, but I thought the way he played in four balls on Friday afternoon, I was a little surprised to see him going out in foursomes on Saturday morning. But then again, I, I only you know I only saw him playing 18 holes that afternoon, so maybe he was playing great, and then he just didn't play well that afternoon. Uh, obviously, he didn't play very well on, on Saturday morning either. But you know, I think it's too easy to to judge someone from the other side of the fence, and and you know, uh, you, you you never know the full side of the story. So, any any pairings that you would have like want like you were shocked that you didn't see from them. Where you're like, hey man, like, like I, I uh, thought these the, two guys, the yeah, yeah, from the US, like, man, I thought these two guys would have, would have played beautifully together. I, I thought, uh, well, obviously JT always played with Jordan. I thought JT was going to get at least a game with Ricky, because obviously I know they're good friends, and it seems like they, you know, they, they, they do their pairings a little bit more based on, on like friendships and and people they get along with, but. You know, I think I think Ricky wasn't, you know, from from everything I've heard. I've spoken with Ricky and he seemed okay, but from what I've heard, he wasn't feeling great. So maybe, you know, he, they would have liked to play him a bit more and they couldn't. I don't know. 
That's what that we, I mean, we spent Friday night on the show being like, I don't know who the eight guys are on the U S right now. I mean, they had such a bad showing on that first day and who knows what the health situation was. I'm curious, total hypothetical here, but I mean, the JT captain's pick was a huge controversy in the U S a huge debate for the majority of the year. How would you have looked at that? If you were a U.S. team captain of some way of obviously the short-term form, not very good at all. Uh, not a ton of signs uh, of it turning around yet a player that I think was written in pen as being on this team and almost could have had as bad of a season as possible and still made the team. It just was a, a, a huge debate of, hey, do you take a hotter player or go with a guy who's got this track record but playing poorly? How would you look at that or how would you have broken down that scenario uh, specifically? Well, I think JT has always been very good in the Ryder Cups. And as I said before, the Ryder Cup is very, very different from any other golf tournament. I mean, we had a similar situation in, I wasn't involved in the team, but in 2018, when Sergio got picked, Sergio had a, one of his worst years of his career, I would say. But then he showed up in the Ryder Cup and he was the usual Sergio. And, and to be honest, JT, again, I followed him the first afternoon when he was playing against Victor and Tyrrell. And he, he was definitely the best of the two. Between him and Jordan, he played much better than Jordan on, on that afternoon. And, uh, and, and he had a decent, pretty decent Ryder Cup, JT, because he won his single. He had that game. I mean, so I think I don't think it was as controversial as, as some people wanted to, to make it look. I mean, it's always difficult when you get down to the peaks. I mean, we had a similar thing, like three months away, we thought, all right, we're struggling to get 12 guys, you know, that, that could play at a good level in this Ryder Cup. And then when the, when, the timing come to, when the time came to make the picks, all of a sudden we had a couple too many. Uh, and unfortunately, there's always someone that is going to get the short end of the stick, uh, which, you know, in, in the US case, it was obviously Keegan, I guess, he was the first, first big one out. Uh, but... You know, it's it's so difficult. I mean, the, everything is so close these days that, you know, he might have picked Keegan and won and looked like a legend and then he picked JT and then he lost and now everyone is saying, oh, he shouldn't have picked JT. But I think there's more to it than the picks. Yeah, it was it was really tricky. We, we did a, a total hypothetical of like, if it was like JT versus Ludwig, obviously a, a total hypothetical, but like an up-and-coming talent that, yeah. you know, a total, you know, what what do you do there was a lot harder question, I think, than, yeah. uh, you know, a Keegan that you kind of know who that who that guy is at that point. But um, obviously it didn't quite work out. Real quick, yeah. what was Ludwig, we've made it 45 minutes in here, so I feel like I can ask at some point. Like, <laughs> Come on. at what point did that, enter your mind and then at what point did that feel like a logical like reasonable expectation that he could be on the team so true story um again may 22 i'm in rome and we're there with henrik and thomas bjorn uh where i was going to be named well officially named vice captain the following day and we were there as well to have a look at the golf course uh, start uh, thinking about things and we're having dinner, and I think it was Thomas that said, "Is there?" He asked me, "Is there anyone in your stats that you see up and coming and that might have a chance to play in Rome?" And obviously, he thought I was going to say something playing in Europe on DP World Tour. And I said, "Well, Thomas, there's a, this kid, Swedish kid, that is playing in college that he might have a chance." And he looked at me like I was, you know, smoking weed, and said, "What? what? I'm like, yeah, yeah, Thomas, this guy, remember the name? He might have a chance." So we leave it there. Uh, he just laughed at me. And then um, 
February, well, late January this year, so nine months ago, Ludwig comes to play as an amateur in Dubai, Desert Classic. And I saw his name on the entry list and I, you know, as a vice captain, I raised my hand and I said, that's my guy for Thursday, Friday. And he shows up, I don't know if you know the golf course at the Emirates, but like it's a typical desert course, pretty cold in the morning, the ball doesn't go very far. And he hit the tee shot on the first hole, the tee shot on the second hole, and I was sold. <laughs> like literally, I, I turned to my caddy and I said, if this guy is not in Rome, there's something wrong here. He shot the easiest 65 you've ever seen. And I finished playing and I walk on the range and there's Thomas sitting in the corner on the range. And he looks at me and he's smiling because obviously he knows what I'm, what I'm about to tell him. And before I can even say anything, he tells me, oh, it's only one round. Stop it. Don't even start. It's only one round. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's only one round, Thomas. But I've seen enough golf in my life. And I'm telling you, this kid is different. Okay, okay, we'll see. Anyway, he doesn't play well in Dubai. Finishes, makes the cut, but finishes at the bottom. Then he has a decent week at Bay Hill, decent week at Valspar, I think. And then I started spending more and more time with Luke. And I said, Luke, the first time you go to the US, you got to play with this kid. Because if he's not in this Ryder Cup team, he will be in the next one. So just keep an eye on him. So Ludwig turns pro and he plays with Luke in Detroit, I want to say. So the second, the first week we pair him with Fitzy and Tyrell Hutton. The PGA Tour was kind enough to ask us, who do you want him to play with? And he goes, okay, let's give him two Ryder Cup players. And both of them text me literally Thursday night saying, oh, Where's this case coming from? Well, like <laughs> Billy, I mean, Billy Foster. Yeah. So Billy caddies for Fitzy. And Billy Foster, you know, I think he caddied in the last 15 or 16 Ryder Cups. So he's seen everything from Sevi all the way, Faldo Langer, all the way to Rory and these guys. And I think he texted Luke that Friday night saying, Luke, we need to keep an eye on this guy. So obviously everyone is raving about it about him and then Luke plays with him in Detroit the following week and I think Ludwig shoots playing with Luke he shoots 65-67 and he's like one of the lead after two days so I texted Luke back and said Luke how so how was it is it is it quite good and he I think he replied something of I've never seen anything like it and I said uh, so where where we are now with him being in the team and obviously, he said this as a joke, but he said, I've already asked him the size of the shirts and what kind of bed does he want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, he, I think he was still laughing at the time. He was saying, oh, yeah, he's good, but yeah. you know, we'll see what happens. And then he started playing really well. And then he came over to Europe, finished top five in Czech. And then, yeah, I mean, I remember even in Czech, he played with my brother. Uh, Francesco had just been named a vice captain two weeks before. And he plays, he asked to play in Czech with Ludwig and Nikolai Hoygaard. So Francesco was all day, 40 to 50 yards behind them. And he comes at dinner and I've been talking to Ludwig, about Ludwig to Francesco for three, four months, saying, you won't believe how good he is. So he comes at dinner and he looks at me and he said, you've been busting my balls for four months about Ludwig. I was ready to give it all back to you tonight. And he said, unfortunately, I can't because I've never seen anything like it. So it was like, I mean, off, off the tee, I mean, again, we're talking like him, like it's the next Tiger Woods. He's not the next Tiger Woods, but off the tee, it's something that it's difficult to, difficult to witness, to, to imagine if you haven't witnessed it. 
and again in a, in a team format you know to play someone to play someone with someone like him in foursomes i mean when we ask the guys who do you want to play with i think i want to say at least 10 but possibly 11 guys say oh can i have a game with ludwig yeah, of course. It's just less variables, <laughs> right? Like you're playing out of the middle of the fairway, yeah. 340 off the tee. Well, you just wait on the tee and you see this bomb 325 down the middle of the fairway. And yeah. Yeah, I would like to play with him. Yeah. I can probably win a game with him. <laughs> His floor is just so ridiculously high. I mean, if he gets the iron play and the and the rest of it, even, yeah, you I mean, know, if he has hot weeks, like when we saw it, he almost won BMW and obviously won Kron. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. he's it's such remarkable. a good kid, and, too. And of he, like, he's got a good head on his shoulders. Yeah. Like, he's already improved his chipping immensely, it seems like this year. Yeah. And then, I mean, the, to go, you know, he plays Ryder Cup and obviously he, I think he struggled a little bit with the, you know, the, 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 the importance of the event, the, the situation, the atmosphere. He, he wasn't the, the Ludwig that I saw two, three weeks before, you could tell. But, a is going to be very helpful in two years' time if he qualifies for Bethpage. I mean, he's already done it before, and you know, Bethpage is going to be dead on on steroids. But yeah, it's uh, I mean, he's just that good, and and yeah, I mean, he will play. As Luke said, he might play eight, ten Ryder Cups. <laughs> well, it uh, seems like too. Yeah. There's such a you know between him and Nikolai and you know Rasmus coming and then yeah. adrian dumontich or sart like there's there, there seems like there's a good groundswell of young talent to choose from coming up yeah 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 i agree i think there's a we have a lot of young uh, up-and-coming players and um yeah it's, it's an exciting time i mean this time we had a, a very young team obviously because i think the oldest guy was uh, was rosy and then other than him all the others were like in more at the most in that mid-30s uh, so it's, it's a very young team and there's a few young uh, up-and-coming talents. So I think we're in a good place. I mean, Bethpage is going to be extremely difficult. Um, but you never know. What was, what was the team room like Saturday night after, uh, you know, a controversial finish to that? We have the Cantlay situation. We have the Joe LaCava situation. We have, I understand Mr. McElroy was maybe a little emotional about the whole situation, which we saw some evidence of. What, what was Saturday night like uh, going heading into Sunday singles? Well, I would say what Joe did on the 18th green, like he couldn't have done anything better for us. Because, uh, I mean, if he, if he doesn't do anything and we just lose the match and we go back and we're a bit deflated and we're a bit uh, down because we lost the first session since the start of this Ryder Cup. And on the same, at the same time, you have a, f was it a five-point lead? Yeah, ten and a half to, yeah, five-point lead. So you can start thinking, oh, yeah, we just need four points, whatever. It might be a little bit of a tricky situation. I think what Joe did... I mean, we walked back into the locker room, not even in the team room in the hotel, just in the locker room at the course. And everyone was like so motivated and angry and saying, right, this is this is so good because then tomorrow we want to win the session. We want to give them a proper a proper beating in the single session. If if Joe didn't, de didn't do what he did, I think everyone was a bit almost sad and a bit tired and we just gone back to the hotel. But like for 10 minutes, everyone was like, right, Tomorrow, I'm going to win my point. I'm going to win my point, And we're going to give them a proper beat up, which I think is the right. When you have a five-point lead, it's, the right attitude is to go into the singles and try to win the singles. And and I think Joe did, you know, gave us a lot of fuel for, for that Sunday. 
Did you ever get even a little bit nervous on that Sunday with looking up and seeing a little bit of red on the board? Um, I think I was a I was a little bit nervous between. I think the worst time was when when John was one down playing the last. I was a few games behind with Tyrrell. I think Tyrrell was on twelve when John was playing the last. Um, and I thought, wow, we really need this half a point from John to you know to start to start getting closer. Then John got this half a point. Tyrrell played a great back nine against uh, Brian Harman, and he won his game on sixteen. And I think when Tyrrell won his game on sixteen, we only needed half a point. And yes, we were. All, I think only Tommy was one up. Then we had one one down and two all square, but it was only half a point out of four matches. So at some point, something was going to happen, and eventually it did with Tommy. But it was. Uh, I have to say, it was a, a little bit too close for uh, for comfort. Yes, mm. there was that one moment when Tommy was only one up, and uh, Bob uh, McIntyre went, went down to only one up over Clark in those last two. That was like, well, the U.S. had to have both of them, but. Yeah, Bob was all square. It got to all Bob, square, well, but there was the but there was a moment they were both one only one up at the same time, and yes. it was like, oh man, it's. I mean, if there's going to be some both. slippage, yeah, I mean that's that's what happened at Medina. I mean, it was like, okay, well, I mean, not all of this stuff is going to happen, and it did, and it, yes. I, who knows if yes. it's ever going to get yeah. get flipped. But so, what what is? I, I know you don't have a crystal ball on this, but what is uh, what does the future look like for you as an involvement in this in this event in terms of? Uh, do you see yourself as a head captain uh, in the in the near or distant future? No, no, no. Head captain, absolutely not. I don't think I have the the CV. I don't have the, um, you know, I, I didn't have the career to be to be captain. But you know, if uh, whether I don't know whether Luke is going to be the next captain or someone else, uh, if they want me to to be involved again in in helping the team with the stats, whether as a vice captain, whether just as a as a stats guy. I'd be very happy to. I mean, I think as a European, anytime you can you can get involved in the European Ryder Cup team, whether it's a, as a as a water boy or whatever, I'll do it. How so? I don't think I don't think you need a CV to be head captain. <laughs> that, that that like you guys have disproven that. I'm not going to buy that part. But if you, I, I appreciate your humbleness, but I, I wouldn't eliminate yourself. And it's crazy you. too, like just the way that like I play with Rory at BMW Championship in the Pro Am, like just the way that he talks about you and the, like the the respect that you've garnered. From the guys in that team room, both vice captains and players, is is absolutely remarkable. How did the decisions get made? Like, I know much has been made of the task force here in the states. Is there yeah. is, is there kind of a core group of guys that just makes the decision? Is it made in concert with the DP World Tour? Like, how does the the captains decision for the captain? Yeah. Um. So usually, I think that we have like a. Um, Let's call it a committee or something, uh, which is a uh, guy Kinnings, which is like Ryder Cup um, Europe director. Then we have Keith Pelly. We have, I think, David Owell, who's the chairman of our pack, our tournament committee. And then I think it's the the last three captains. So it's like a group of five, six people, and then they will meet in the next few months. Usually, we announce the captain before the end of January, I would say, in normal years. Then I think two years ago with all the leave thing going on, there was a bit of a delay. Uh, so I guess before before the end of January we'll we'll hear some something, but there's no there's no exact deadline or anything. And they will, there's not like a voting process. I think it's just, just more a, of a discussion and then they 
they agree on someone and, and they they ask him. We'll get you out of here on this then. What, uh, as I previously mentioned, the home teams have definitely dominated this event. How, how does Europe flip it? Rory was, uh, was quite conf- confidently stated that Europe is going to flip it at Beth Page. That's going to be one psycho uh, environment. I, I know he knows that, but how, how do you flip it? it as, as I see it right now, it is, it's it, playing at home versus playing on the road is, are two totally different things. How would you evaluate uh, what Europe has to do to flip that? Yeah, I mean, as, as Rory said, winning a winning a, an away Ryder Cup these days is probably the, the most difficult feat in, in in golf for sure, and probably in sports, I would say. How do you flip it? I don't know. I'll tell you in two years, hopefully. <laughs> it's uh, it's difficult. I mean, you have to go in with the right mindset for sure, because if you don't go in with the right mindset, it's going to be a very long week. We had Djokovic in our team room. Uh, on the Thursday night and he spoke for 10-15 minutes to the team with Luke with everyone and he gave us a couple of good ideas like obviously he's always he's basically played his whole career in tennis with the crowds rooting against him and and he had a couple of good tips that I think will come very handy in, in Beth Page but as I said I think you have to somehow you have to embrace the the environment uh, if you start moaning about you know the crowds and the booing and everything, uh, you're just setting yourself up for a, for a beating. For uh, Beth Page, how do you see the course being set up? Similar to how we've seen it for for the majors there. Well, I guess uh, I, I've never been at Beth Page, but I've seen the the shotling data for for events and stuff. It looks like you cannot make it like a, a birdie fest like they they usually try and make in the US. Um, so I know, I know it could be, it might be a slightly different, different rider cup. But then on the other hand, you got Adari Manor in, in 27, which is as an American golf course as, as you may get. Like it's wide, long, uh, runoff areas everywhere. So I know you might, you might, we might win a bath page and then maybe we change the venue for Adari Manor. Or we do something <laughs> dramatic to the golf course. <laughs> TC was complaining about the setup at, at Beth Page before the Marco Simone Ryder Cup even it's happened. Just, he's, this is it's just like a bunch of straight holes. There's so the greens are so flat, they're all kind of perched up. There's a couple bunkers in front yeah. of them. It's it's pretty it's pretty unspectacular in my opinion. I don't know. It's it's good to have my mind off the course set up for a while. We, <laughs> yeah. we we spent so much time looking at every possible detail. Yeah. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be nice in a way to just go there and, and play what you get and it's going to be fine. I mean, I think at the end of the day, just well, as, say, the bunker, the, as long as the bunker raking isn't, isn't crazy at Beth Page, the U S is going to win. What's wrong with this bunker raking? I don't understand. I, all I, all I had heard from a very good source that I thought you had told this person that, that the, the rake bristles were wider than standard rakes. Huh? <laughs> I'll tell you the name of this person as soon as we hang up. He literally told me that. But okay. Uh, <laughs> anyway, good. what's one example? Just like we've heard about the video that 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 Luke showed to each team member. What's another example of Luke's leadership that just you think sums him up really well? Either attention to detail or you know just just something that really speaks to him. So many things like um, well, to start with the the opening the opening ceremony speech. Like I was sitting uh, next to Francesco, you know, Luke was on the side and we had this, uh, they have this screen in front of them, like 20 yards in front with the speech that they're basically reading the speech. And obviously when Zach 
did his speech, he had the phonetics for the Italian words. So when he said, I think he said, grazie and buonasera, he had a couple of words. And then when Luke steps up, we're looking at the screen and we saw like a couple of full sentences written in proper Italian with the Italian spelling. And I, I look at Francesco, we look at each other thinking, all right, this is a mistake. This is, now this is panic. And Luke looked at that and just started reading in perfect Italian. Like the pronunciation, everything was perfect. And the crowds understood it. And I mean, that was one up Europe already straight away, 10 seconds into, into his captaincy. So, I mean, that's one thing. I mean, the videos were amazing. I mean, I'm not a very emotional person and I was almost in tears. Uh, poor Jose Maria. Jose Maria was crying, I think. You know, I think he spent 30% of the week crying because of... <laughs> Me too. Know, I mean, yeah, but like in the locker room, there was this uh, savvy thing. I guess you've seen it on social media where they hang, uh, they hang the savvy shirt that they used at Oak Hill in his last Ryder Cup. And we have this nice picture of, I mean, we went in there on Tuesday morning, the first time we get to the golf course all together. And then we go out on the range, on the putting green, warming up, and no one can see Chema or Uh So we try and find him, and then eventually someone goes in the locker room and he's still in front of Sevi's locker, crying like a baby, and he just couldn't stop. And it's like... Phew. So, I mean, going back to Luke, I think... I mean, so many things. I mean, the, the, the biggest thing is the amount of time he spent uh, doing all this, like from learning Italian. I mean, learning Italian, I mean, he did. So he downloaded Duolingo, an app on his iPhone. And I think he had the week of the Ryder Cup. I think he got to 290 consecutive days doing the Duolingo. I mean, you try and do anything for 290 consecutive days, Eventually, you're going to break your string. But, you know, so again, motivational videos. I mean, he had a very cool thing, which was his own idea in, in our team room. We had like, as a Ryder Cup player, you get a replica of the trophy. Whether you win or lose, you just get, for appearance, you get a replica of the trophy. And usually you get it at the end of the week. And his idea was, I'm going to give it to the guys at the beginning of the week. We're going to have a nice uh, display in the team room with the 12 Ryder Cups replica for the players. And there's going to be one gap in the middle. And every time you walk in the team room, you look at the gap and you think, All right, at the end of the week, we need to fill the gap. And then obviously at the end of the week, he comes in with the Ryder Cup and puts it in the gap. And it was just uh, amazing. But it's, uh, I mean, so, so many things. I mean, again, to, you know, it was difficult to get Olazabal involved and, you know, he called John, he called Olazabal, he called John again and he said, John, just make sure that Chema comes on board and he got it. Like, I mean, a number of things that were just, uh, you know, I, I would have never thought of, of some of those details and, and, and he did it. I mean, I think communication was fantastic with all the players. Like, everyone knew exactly going into the week, they knew what they were going to do on Friday, what was the possibilities on Saturday, uh, everything. Like even up to the practice trip, like before we went on the practice trip, Luke sends us like a, a, a WhatsApp text, very long text, where we had the exact schedule for the practice trip, which is fine. And then he said, the week of the Ryder Cup, I want to have this to happen, this to happen, this to happen. And it was like every, every 30, 40 minutes, there was something going on. And everything was already planned. It was like... It just gives you 
as a player, it just gives you a sense again of of calmness and of like if you know if my captain, if my leader is so well organized, motivated, is up for it, then everything is going to be much easier. So I think again, going back to the beginning, I think Luke was uh, he was the true MVP of the week, and and I'm you know deep down I'm really hoping he's uh, he's able to do it again because it's uh, I think the players will love him. You made me feel weirdly good about 2025 because I don't think Tiger needs Duolingo to practice English up in front of uh, the 2025 Ryder Cup. So I think I think if that's what if that's what it takes, I think the Barrick is going to be a great position. So that's that. <laughs> yeah, Tiger, Man, Tiger is... might might bust out an Irish accent or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, hey, Eduardo, this one's up there, man, for me in terms of interviews and, and insight into the Ryder Cup. I know we did a great one with Paul McGinley a couple of years ago that was just like painted the picture for why Europe's had so much success in this event and why uh, I like I tend to like it for a lot of the reasons that you've talked about today. I still am kind of determining why I'm rooting for the U.S. in these things. But the way you guys treat it as a competition and the team aspect of it, I find so fascinating. And to hear like especially hear Jose Maria's, uh, you know, that description of how what he thinks of this event is uh, kind of what I think about it just as a sports fan. So thank you so much for your time and sharing some insights and uh, and some look into it. And we'll, we'll dig back into this bunker thing once we hang up. But uh, we greatly appreciate your time <laughs> and uh, hope to do it again sometime. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's been great fun. Thank you. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect 